Hi, my name is Scott Crampton. I am the owner, founder, and professional fake detective of the Murder Mystery Company, and I am on the App Guy Podcast. The App Guy Podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. The App Guy Podcast. Welcome to the App Guy podcast. I am your host. It's Paul Kemp, and it's my job to bring you some of the best guests from around the world. You know, really inspiring guests who have a fantastic journey to share. And so far, we've just been overwhelmed with the great guests that have been on the show. But today, in particular, I'm just so excited because we have a phenomenal guest, and uh, really looking forward to learning about the journey. And uh, so, let's dig straight into the journey of uh, Julie Boucher. And she is the founder of uh, Slaucer. Slaucer, I think that's how you say it. You probably have to correct that, Julie. It's a British accent. Um, but you are were on Shark Tank, I believe. And Shark Tank is the American version of Dragon's Den, uh, which I think is actually quite a global show now. And uh, you were one of the uh, presenters. So uh, anyway, a warm welcome to the App Guy podcast, Julie. No, fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. And you know, first of all, perhaps you could just, uh, I guess, tell us uh, a little bit about the journey that it took you up to Shark Tank and, and then how that changed your life. Absolutely. Um, well, going back to my pre-entrepreneurial days before I launched this big food brand, um, I actually worked in motorsports. So NASCAR is hugely popular here in the States. And I worked over a decade within NASCAR marketing uh, and I've represented a major sponsor within the sport called General Mills. They're, they are a major food company here in the States. Uh, they produce Cheerios, which is probably licensed under the under the Nestle brand over across the pond. But uh, I worked with General Mills for nine and a half years, and um, I actually helped start a sport marketing agency from for one of the na- popular NASCAR drivers. So, um, you know, I worked kind of in a man's world, uh, work marketing, had a, had a great deal of um, my life uh, working with, you know, a major food corporation. So at the end of the 2010 race season, I decided to leave the sport, even though, you know, I had a very good role, was paid very well, probably more than most men my age and decided to take the leap of faith to become an entrepreneur. So um, I ended up launching um, this brand new condiment called Slalsa. It's a cross between a slaw and a salsa. And I can tell you, I'm actually very excited because um, we're going to be starting to sell it over in Europe. There is a, a, a USA website called Wishbox USA, and um, they're based out of London. And um, they bring a lot of the very, very unique items from America to sell um, via mail um, throughout Europe. So um, actually, I think that begins in a couple of days. So we're very excited um, to go overseas. But um, launching a, a food product to the American market is something that takes a great deal of time. Fortunately, Slalsa is very different. It's kind of a cabbage-based relish with a little bit of heat undertones. Um, So it's really good on your hot dogs and brats and burgers, pulled pork, um, fish. You can just dip it with tortilla chips. So you can use it any way you would eat a slaw or a salsa. Um, And within uh, about a year and a half, 
I had gotten my brand in over 4,200 stores in the U.S. Um, and then that's when Shark Tank happened. Um, you know, I was, I was very fortunate, obviously 35,000 people apply for the show every year and only about a hundred get aired. Um, so I'm very, very fortunate that they picked me. Um, of course I had some major retailers, uh, behind me already Kroger and Walmart, um, the two, two biggest ones here in the U S. Um, and, uh, even by the time my air date happened, uh, in November, I taped in, July and I aired in mid-November, um, I was in 5,200 stores on my own accord. So that was without anyone knowing that I even did Shark Tank. So um, we're in over 6,000 stores now and expect to be in about 7,000 um, in the next uh, couple months. So we're really excited about the growth. Obviously, um, you know, just getting that exposure on Shark Tank was a huge thing. But I think the biggest thing for us, even though I didn't get a deal, I didn't get an offer, which... I, Honestly, I never would have guessed it. I, I didn't think for a moment that I wouldn't have multiple offers based off of our numbers, our growth, our uniqueness, you know, the, the retailer confidence, which is huge. Um, you know, the, the sacrifices I personally put into the company, but I got insane amount of um, compliments from all of the sharks, even after I left, Mark Cuban was going on and on about me. So I think that was the fact that I got a decent edit um, and it showed that they really couldn't nail me on anything because they can be quite harsh. Um, yeah, on many I guess that's why they call them the sharks, which that's you've right. renamed it. But, I mean, we've got dragons, but you guys have got sharks. But our, but my sharks were actually quite nice to me. Um, <laughs> okay. You tamed the sharks, if, Julie. If, if you go in and you know your numbers, you know your business. Um, and, and, you know, I think the sharks that I presented to maybe didn't have good knowledge of industry that's that wasn't their background so maybe they just thought i was going to be fine on my own or or whatever it was you know they but they you know just uh, just getting okay. i guess you know in terms of your story you know you, here you are in quite a man's dominated world you know with nascar and uh i, I guess just mentioning we we did have a former nascar driver uh, as a guest on the show uh, gerard sessler who, um, yeah, he, I don't know if the name rings a bell for you, but uh, he's got into becoming an entrepreneur. And uh, yeah, he was fascinated to talk to. Obviously, we don't get NASCAR, particularly over right. here uh, in the UK. But yeah, I guess that really prepped you and, and, and meant that you could stand up to these sharks and, uh, you know, give it your own. Well, and even the grocery industry is very male dominated. I mean, I would even as a vendor going into mandatory meetings at some of my retailers, if there's a hundred people present, I can honestly count on one or two hands how many are women. Um, most of your buyers are men. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I've never had a fear of approaching anyone and doing a sales pitch in my businesses in the past or what I'm doing now. Um, so, I, you know, I think I just take that on. And, and I've always been a person, um, who's been very competitive. I ran cross country and track in college. That's, that was my scholarship, um, that in academics. So I didn't, didn't have to pay for school, thank God. <laughs> um, but, but I went on an athletic scholarship. So always having that competitive mindset, I think has helped me in business as well. Yeah, and I'm thinking also we had uh, some really terrific guests that were all focused on bringing uh, entrepreneurial work to women and so I'm thinking of Stephanie Burns and she uh, run a company called Chic CEO and 
then uh, Kate Matsudeira, she was running a company, a, a Pop Forms. And uh, yeah, so all these, uh, you know, like females that are just, it seems to be like a, I mean, from their standpoint, they were saying it was, it's a hugely uh, popular time to be a female entrepreneur. It is. And, you know, I think that women are extremely driven because we, I think we're, we still have the mindset that we have to prove ourselves. Um, and so I, you know, even just going back to NASCAR, some of the hardest working people I remember in the sport were some of the women. There was, there's a woman um, by the name of Alba Cologne, and she is the head um, engineer, head engineer for the Sprint Cup Series for Chevrolet as a whole. So she's in charge of the entire Chevrolet engine program. And it's a woman. Um, and she worked her way up into that role. And then I admire her greatly because, you know, she was kind of a, the first person in that role. So I think, you know, it's, it's very few women that kind of make it toward the top in NASCAR because it is still very male dominated. Um, and, and I would imagine you probably still see that in Formula One as well. But, um, you know, I, you know, I think yeah, well, it's, it's crazy, actually. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of our uh, most popular motorsports. I mean, it's a global sensation, uh, you know, I guess right. outside of the U.S. But I honestly don't understand why they don't have female at mixed racing, because there's no competitive uh, advantage being a man no. in a car. I mean, it's a car. That's, the car's doing all the work. Right. And I think I think it does boil down. I mean, a good driver can make a great car great. But I think in NASCAR specifically, it is a little bit more about the car than it is the driver, in just my opinion. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually come from a hometown that tried to build the racetrack for NASCAR to try and uh, kickstart the whole series over here. And the first race that came over, it was uh, rained off, and I don't think it came back. Oh. <laughs> so they built. So in my hometown, we got a stadium that was built for NASCAR, and I think I, I managed to see one of them going around, and the noise was just phenomenal. But we're we're yeah. not here to talk about NASCAR. Obviously, this no, is the Apgar. <laughs> Sorry, it's my my fault. I'm getting distracted <laughs> because it's just so exciting. But I, I tell you what. Um, the people can learn a lot from you, Julie, because uh, we pitch our apps to potentially sell the apps. Maybe we pitch an idea to a marketer to try and market our apps. You've been through the ultimate you know, pitch to uh, the sharks. Um, I would love to sort of have you share your experience and any advice you can give for pitching your uh, business in, in the best way. Right. Um, you know, knowing that I had something very different than what they had ever seen before and knowing that, you know, it may not necessarily be accepted because, you know, everyone knows what a chocolate chip cookie is. Everyone knows what a brownie or a peanut butter is. Here I had kind of a hybrid between a cabbage base, a slaw and a salsa. And, you know, I knew very early on, even though I gave them the salsa to try and I knew that the taste was going to be good, I didn't want them making any judgments right off the bat without knowing some of the facts that I wanted to get out early. So I wanted to make it known I was in 4,200 stores nationally because I knew if they had anything negative to say, they would have kept it to themselves um, knowing that fact knowing that I had more than doubled the sales between year and one, year one and year two from 212,000 to 500,000. So I, I wanted to make sure I got out some key facts early on in the conversation and that tends to get their attention a little bit longer. So, um, you know, I would say if, if you have an app that is so unique and different, if there is one or two points, make sure you get those out early. 
And also, I guess it is slightly relevant in that you took uh, two successful products pretty much and, you know, you had the uh, audacity and the, you know, the, I guess the ambition to just think of uh, outside the box and uh, do something differently. So uh, what does it take to be different, do you think? You know, I think there's more value in having something that's unique and different. Even even a lot of the food products that you see on Shark Tank or, or that you probably even see on Dragon's Den over there, um, they are perhaps just all natural or slightly better versions of something that's already out there. Um, when you have something that is so different and it really could revolutionize the category, um, you know, my product, Slalsa, would get merchandised in with kind of the pickle relishes. Well, I can tell you Slalsa, without a doubt, is not only healthier and tastier than a pickle relish, but it's far more versatile. So um, I, I know that, you know, the, the pickle manufacturers and the pickle relish manufacturers are looking at Slalsa and they're threatened because my sales could overtake their sales um, within the category because it is so unique and so different. Um, you know, I think if you have something different, that's only going to be a benefit um, to you. To, to, you know, I, and I, for whatever reason, don't understand why the sharks didn't see that having, they, they probably saw it as a hurdle, as maybe an education hurdle to the consumer. But, uh, you know, it's the, the things that get the biggest are the things that are extremely different from what's out there. Well, um, and I know we have to put the sharks on a pedestal because they're, you know, they've been so, uh, I guess, successful in what they do. But I right. think Mark Mark Cuban has uh, made one or two mistakes in the past in terms of uh, his incubator and, uh, you know, missing up the opportunities for uh, big wins. And so they don't get it right all the time. And clearly, no. you know, this is the one time they've probably got it wrong. But I've got to, I've got to say that in, in one of our most successful Dragon Dens episodes uh, happened to be with uh, Levi Roots here in the UK. And so anyone in the UK listening will know this very well, this story. He became a household name, a legend, because he came up with uh, reggae, reggae sauce. And he just literally got onto the uh, pitch and did something so different that uh, there was four of the dragons that dismissed him as, uh, you know, a complete irrelevance. Um, but one of the dragons uh, took a bet on him. And it has been to this day, I think, even the most successful uh, business that Peter Jones has invested in on Dragon's Den. Uh, I think I think that is the case. And it's a household name. It's everywhere. It's in all the big stores. And it's a food story. And I just I love that story. Well, and I, I, I completely agree with um, the, the Roots guy. You know, I think that something for people to know, and this is just, you know, a little tidbit of marketing, is that people do connect themselves to the person. And I think in my Shark Tank episode, a lot of people felt a connection to me. And that's, that's even if someone may not have necessarily had interest in your product, they might go and try it because of you. Um, so it's much easier to grow a brand, to start a brand when people have a comfort with the owner, you know, knowing that they're a good person, that there's, you know, someone to be admired. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the Roots guy was, was probably very much in the same boat as I am in that regard. 
he, he's amazing. He's, uh, he used to uh, run a stall on uh, Notting Hill. I don't know if you've seen the film Notting Hill, but there's a carnival every year. And uh, he, was, he was, this is why I love, we, we don't often get these uh, stories. They always seem to be, you know, arise from America. But uh, he, he was just running his stall, uh, selling his reggae, reggae sauce on a stall. And I've met Levi Roots, actually. I've met him uh, in person. Uh, he's the most uh, great you know, kind, gentle man. He's a huge giant of a guy, you know, uh, in excess of oh, six foot uh, plus, huge guy. And uh, just a gentle giant, really friendly, really kind. And uh, I just feel like uh, that was uh, several years ago now, but it was the start of this personal branding. And uh, many of the listeners do, uh, I think we're getting a theme from this podcast, which is that it's really important to build the brand around maybe yourself and your own personality because people buy authentic, uh, authentic people. You know, they're really warm. We're human beings and we we trust authentic people. And th- that seems to be, you know, helpful in the marketing. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just for potential customers of your brands, but when you go into those buyer meetings, um, I just came back from a very big retailer in West Texas last week. Everything went fantastic. It's, a, it's actually um, a, a retailer that rivals a Walmart in their area. So they, they kind of, um, they kind of own pretty much all the grocery space in West Texas. And the buyer, uh, said to me, he said, and you know, we just sat there and, you know, we talked, I presented them with my marketing program. And, and I think it's important for people to know, you know, marketing is so, so important. There's a lot of food entrepreneurs out there and, and probably entrepreneurs of other products as well. And they think the goal is to get the product on the shelf. That, that isn't really the goal. Getting the product on the shelf is the easy part. It's getting your product off the shelf. That should be the goal. Um, and he said, he said something to me. He said, Julie, he said, you know what? It's actually refreshing that you come in here with such a focus on your marketing program that you're presenting to me um, because I'm mostly dealing with a lot of people who start a food company who are trying to figure out marketing. You're a marketer who just happened to start a food company. And he says that means a lot to um, us as a retailer, me as a buyer, uh, you know, that that my focus is is on the marketing and the brand. And, um, you know, I have a very, very wide program and everything integrates back within each other. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I've a lot of food companies don't realize that you have to put in all of your profits right back into marketing heavily those first several years. Um, because if you do that, it's going to pay in dividends down the line. And I think of it a lot like when you're saving for retirement. So, you know, here in the States, you know, a lot of people may not start saving hard for their retirement until they're maybe 30s or mid 30s when they start making more money. Well, if they would have started at 20s, even though they're not making that much money in their early 20s, if you invest in as much as you can, that 10 years will start compounding and make a much bigger difference, you know, when you're getting ready to retire in your late 60s. Um, So I, I think when it comes to growing a grocery brand, especially since I've gotten in so many stores so quickly because I have a unique item, um, you know, I have to be aggressive on marketing in the beginning. And unfortunately, you know, all of my buyers are extremely happy with our progress. And it's not like 
We're going to get cut out of stores. Um, you know, we're, they're seeing the growth. Um, they're reporting fantastic numbers, and, and I couldn't be happier. But I know if I didn't put, if I didn't make wise choices in marketing early on, and I didn't put an emphasis in my marketing program, you know, I would have had a product that would have been on the shelf for a year, and it would have been right back off. Um, and a lot of food entrepreneurs learn that lesson the hard way. And it's so much harder to re-get back into that store when they've had a bad taste in their mouth for it not selling the first time around. Well, you so, know, I, I um, like, I mean, Julie, what I like to do is uh, apply this to the audience and we we tend to be uh, app developers. Uh, well, firstly, um, I'm just uh, really grateful that we only have two stores to get into, you know, the Apple store and the Google right. store. So <laughs> hearing you in this fight to get into so many different stores, 4,200, then 6,000. I mean, we're, we, we, we honestly do not, like for instance, Google, they have an algorithm. When you put an app on the Google Play store, it's just literally an algorithm and, and your app can be for sale within 12 hours. And, right. and it's not even a manual review. It's just an algorithm. It proves pretty much everything and then goes in. So there's literally right. no barrier to entry in oh, get, getting nice. on the store. Uh, there is a two-week wait for Apple, but then they approve most things. And uh, if it's a good app, they'll, they'll get in there. So that whole part right. of the process for us is just making me feel, feel very grateful and that we've got this global distribution network that is you know, quite seamless. Um, right. The other thing I was going to pick up on then is that we like on the App Guy podcast to try and uh, come up with an app idea or two. And the way we do this is we we talk about your current frustrations, you know, something that in your business, uh, anything you could perhaps talk us through that's you ju- you're just getting really frustrated with and but perhaps we can flesh out an idea for an app. Sure. Well, one of the one of the things that uh, I think a lot of food entrepreneurs get frustrated with is just the timing. Uh, you know, retailers, and I don't know that this is anything that can be solved by an app. Maybe it can. I doubt it. But uh, but all the major retailer chains have only a certain window per year that they're going to look at changing a category around. It has to do with the way they schedule their planograms and and things like that. Um, so a lot of the times, you know, if we miss that window of opportunity, we have to wait a whole nother year or almost another year to repitch to hopefully get on it on the shelf um, later on. So there is sort of a delay and it, it is a human delay and it's just the way the grocery industry works on being able to get into retailer shelves. That sounds um, really archaic. And I have yeah. to say that that uh, literally what, what one window of opportunity every year to pitch right. your idea for or the food. Sometimes it's every two years. Sometimes they, they will go every other year changing around a category. It's, but it's just one of those frustrations that you just have to get over. Um, gosh, I'm, you know. Uh, well, so, so here's, here's like already that's really sparking some ideas in me because you, okay. you, know, you mentioned earlier that your food was a, a disruptive. Now in the app world, we talk about that all the time. You know, the fact that we're being disruptive to different industries. So we've got apps out there like Uber who are completely disrupting the whole transport 
uh, you know, industry. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful. If you haven't used it yet, then definitely download that app. And it's just, yeah. it's an amazing experience. You uh, c- come out of an airport or you go into a foreign town. I've just used it um, several months ago in Dubai. You press a button, the app knows where you are and tells you within, it t- tells you where all the cars are around you and then comes and, and delivers a private driver within usually a few minutes. And you get into the car, they give you a bottle of, bottle of water and uh, and then you, you leave the car and there's no payment because it's all through the app. Right. It's amazing. Now that is disruptive. Now, uh, right. I'm telling you that retail, if, if they're leaving too, this is the way I almost think that, uh, that these, these guys are going to be under threat. You know, you've had a lot of promotion, perhaps through social media as well. I definitely want to talk to you about social media. But what if there was just this huge campaign to get you, you know, this new food in a store and uh, almost like a backlash against the retailers for not getting it? Then there's the push uh, from the consumers that then they're going to have to perhaps revisit this, this, this archaic system. Right. No, and I, I think that I think that's a really smart thing because, you know, being so new, we are, uh, you know, we're only in, I mean, we probably supply to maybe 75% of the U.S. We have some holes out west, we have some holes up in the northeast that people just can't very easily get us. So anytime we ship internet orders um, out to especially places that were not in abundant um, distribution, we hand them um, or we, we give them a little piece of paper and it basically says this is a basically a customer request form um, because there is no system within the grocery retailers for people to very easily request items. Um, we have our UPC numbers on there. We have our company's point of contact on there. We don't want people just asking for it because I'll tell you, the grocery store managers that information doesn't go up the chain. If you just ask for it, it's not going to go anywhere. That's why we give them a physical piece of paper to hand them. um, And then it's got all of our information so the retailer knows how to get in touch with us. Um, Now, this is the difference about how we're marketing now is because people are buying into your story. You know, they're not just buying the product. They're buying your, you know, your whole backstory and and you. And uh, it almost builds up a following that causes people to take action you know they, they it's, yeah. it's not a passive decision anymore you know based on the taste or the product it's it's the fact that they i guess you have a following and uh, people really want this uh, can you just i'm, I'm just thinking can you t- do you know roughly like the split between your sales uh, in in the physical stores versus the uh, internet sales okay my goal is to drive people to the retailers. That That is my goal. And that's what most food companies' goal is. Is that because um, they force you to do that? They don't like you selling I, on the internet? Um, you know what? Um, the, really, the, the one issue with internet sales, and, and especially because I have a very affordable product, our cost to the, to the consumer is about $3.50 US to for a 16 ounce jar to ship product. I have to ship six per case and we have to factor in shipping costs, you know, for an 11 pound package to a residence in California. Um, so I do a flat $10 shipping anywhere in the continental U S some, some places I gain, some places I lose. Um, uh, okay. Julie, what about, uh, Amazon? Have you thought about the fulfilled by Amazon system? Yeah, but um, we're. I mean, it would still be more cost. It would be costlier 
to buy it online than it is in the store. And that's just where the numbers work out. It is so much, it is cheaper to buy it in the store. So um, unfortunately it's shipping just, it adds too much to the margins. Uh, grocery products work off a of very high volume, very low margins. So 99.5% of my business is done in the store. And that's where I want it done. I am here to fulfill orders and ship all over the United States. Um, if people want, uh, if maybe they can't get a flavor near them that they want or, um, or they just can't get it near them, um, I'm shipping every single day um, tons of packages to, to get out to people. Uh, where but, you know, it's interesting because, uh, I'm sorry to in interject here, I've, I've just thought that there is an app that's really popular at the moment in New York, I think it is, that uh, people opt to uh, – uh, either get a restaurant meal or say they spill some coffee on their shirt. They press this app and someone within 15 minutes or half an hour turns up uh, with the thing that they wanted. So uh, I can honestly see that, uh, that there may be, and people are prepared to pay this, like maybe a $5 delivery charge just for, you know, like a Starbucks coffee because they don't want that inconvenience of having to go to a store, you know, because t to them it saves time to just, you know, order this thing through the app. So I can really no, see that, yeah. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll it, get a link to that. You know, trying to figure out a way for the consumers to get their voice heard by the grocery store, by the retailer, by corporate, that's, that's what we've got to solve. Because, you know, there are a lot of people who want certain things, and I know there's space issues. They, you know, stores can't carry everything. But we, the, the small guys, the little guys like me who are working – you know, I, I'm only in 6,000 stores. There might be 35,000 stores in the U.S. So um, for the little guy like me, um, and, and really I'm very big compared to a lot of little guys, um, but, uh, you know, for, for me to gain placement in additional stores, you know, it really helps for the, the buyers and the category managers at corporate to know that the demand is there. Um, so if, if there's a way that that can be streamlined, um, you know, that's ideal. Every major retailer on their website says, if you want an item, you can request it. But the fact is that you just request, you know, the, the consumer just requests, I want Slalsa. They, they don't have a UPC code. They don't have a Slalsa contact. They don't have any of that information to provide, you know, the retailer with. So that's why we include that on our little sheets and hope that it, you know, goes it, up. It, yeah, it just sounds like it's an industry ripe for disruption. And yes. Uh, I feel that, you know, I mean, if you look at all the other industries that have uh, just ignored the power of the consumer and, and giving the consumer exactly what they want, then right. uh, I just feel that, that those industries have been completely knocked off their uh, pedestal. And uh, maybe these big retailers, uh, the time has come at some point to, uh, you know, get, 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 get them uh, in, in <laughs> get them realizing that they just need to ad adapt and uh, change. And uh, yeah, sure. so um, you're all using Facebook a lot more, but beyond Facebook, I'm not really not seeing a lot of, um, you know, changes. I'm not seeing a lot of technology um, in reaching out to the consumer beyond beyond Facebook. Um, obviously, they're downloading coupons directly onto their discount cards um, that they scan at checkout. So they do that. But, you know, beyond that, it, there hasn't been as much technology 
in the grocery industry as I think that there can be. It's really dangerous because we are consumers now that uh, get used to getting what we want. And uh, anywhere we are now in, in any of these big cities, we have an app that we can just press and things that we want get delivered to us. <laughs> so <laughs> we're quite high maintenance as consumers. And I think if retailers expect us to go to the store and do a weekly shop and uh, you know walk to the back of the store and, and look for uh, Slaughter, then you know they're, they're they really need to rethink and uh, just be prepared that things will change. So uh, it, it changes coming. And uh, I feel that, that, that it's been a really interesting, you know, story to to kind of get out of you in, in terms of uh, uh, the, the whole archaic uh, world of retail. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Julie, I mean, you've inspired me. You've inspired, I'm sure, a lot of people listening to this. How best can we reach out to you and connect? Well, uh, if you want to go to the Slawsa.com website, S-L-A-W-S-A, we are on Facebook and Twitter at Slawsa, S-L-A-W-S-A. My personal Twitter is Jules Boucher. Um, I do have a LinkedIn profile at Julie Boucher. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I do have a little bit of my story. If you click on the Shark Tank link on our website, swalsa.com, um, I have my little Shark Tank story there. But then if you look off to the right hand side, I have a lot of business articles that I've written, whether it be Sports Business Journal or Huffington Post or um, just other other articles and some of them are driven more toward food entrepreneurs some are just marketing some are branding related um but you know i i really do feel and one of the reasons why i like to do podcasts is i i i feel an obligation to give back um so so i know i wouldn't be where i'm at if i hadn't read or heard something from someone else who was a few steps ahead of me um, in, in launching their company. So if I can help a fellow food entrepreneur or someone else who, who's starting out um, with an idea or, or you know just helping them not make as many mistakes early on based off of my experience, then you know I feel obligated to do, to do that. So I do write business articles um, relatively often, um, and I do have a link to all of those on the Shark Tank page of the Slalsa.com website. Well, that is wonderful. And just in terms of us giving back to you then, uh, if, if you are writing a lot of content, uh, one of the things to think about going forward is that there, uh, our last guest before you was talking about the news stand on uh, uh, tablets and how there's been a 400% increase in people reading uh, magazines on their tablets using newsstand. And uh, he, he was talking about his uh, particular... Um, a, a website called appzinemachine.com and it's making it really easy now for us to create uh, use this content create magazines put those magazines into newsstand and and uh, actually have subscriptions to our content and oh no so, i think that's fantastic yeah so that um, i just feel like content creators you know need to think about newsstand as potentially a uh, another revenue stream of of um, and just engaging with their audience. So uh, something no, to think about. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Julie, it's been, a, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, you, as I say, uh, I've really enjoyed going through this journey with you. All the best with what you're doing. And, uh, you know, maybe we could get you back on and, uh, you know, when the retail industry has waken up and uh, <laughs> they, they realize that uh, they've got to change. And 
it's you know putting the power back into the consumer that's the thing i'm really coming out of this, this story is uh, to, to really uh, empower the consumer because uh, we're, we're used to being empowered no i look forward to it paul i'll, I'll absolutely come on again great Julie. thanks ever so much thank you thank you for listening to this podcast stay tuned for the next episode if you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone then please send an email to info at onemob.com the app guy podcast <laughs>